0: In our last episode, we listened to the tale of Zwanendale and the search for utopia, all of which did not involve really the rest of New Netherland. It existed in a bubble. And yet the same outside forces that ended the last podcast will intrude onto this podcast, and we will see what happens as a result. So let's go back to our fearless leader, Peter Stuyvesant. What has he been up to? The last time we saw him... He was part of resolving these Espus wars, where the Espus Indians were essentially wiped out. Again, Espus, Esopus, Esopus, they're all interchangeable to me. The few survivors would be integrated and assimilated into other Lenape tribes, sowing discontent and hatred for the Dutch hereon after. Keefe's war reduced the population down to only a thousand residents in all of New Netherland. Peter Stuyvesant took control, And he had a firm hand over the affairs of the colony. And he created a level of stability that allowed people to feel comfortable living in New Netherland again. And so over the 18 or so years we see Peter Stuyvesant in charge of the colony, the population ends up multiplying by 10. And by the 1660s, the population of the colony will be approaching 10,000 people. So contrary to some early historians, New Netherland wasn't some backwater failed colony that was just waiting for the English to come rolling in. They were growing by leaps and bounds. And by the middle of the 17th century, New Netherland was no longer a frontier colonial possession full of young men looking to strike out and find opportunities. It became a family community. You had a relative balance of the genders. You had children being born. You had a rudimentary educational system put into place. You had churches. You had local governments criminal justice systems, and a culture unique onto itself, not just a mirror of what's going on in Old Netherland. And for the Dutch, their main competitor in the fur trade were the French, up in New France, which we'll cover next season. New France, at this time, when New Netherland is approaching 10,000 people, only has around 3,000 people. So as much as you hear about New France, and New Netherland seems to be the smaller colony in, uh, as far as history is concerned... <laughs> New Netherland at this time was bigger, much bigger, and very successful. Not in terms of what it provided to the Dutch West India Company, but in terms of what the people on the ground doing the trading and the living were experiencing. New Netherland was a place of opportunity that was just beginning to rival the opportunities happening in the Netherlands where they're undergoing a golden age at this time. Nevertheless, the seaboard is shared. The English are near. During the first Anglo-Dutch War, New Netherland was nearly taken. Stuyvesant put up a good show, rallied all of his forces, and then at the very last minute, he was saved by a diplomatic peace. Just when all seemed lost, news from across the Atlantic informed both sides that the first Anglo-Dutch War had ended. After this, Stuyvesant began to be even suspicious of the English colonists living in his colony, who were loyal to the Netherlands, but were More or less refugees from New England. Where in New England at this time they have small democratic theocracies in many cases. And if you were not in total agreement with the religious beliefs of those in charge, you were kicked out. And that would have been the humane ending for you. And so New Netherland took in a lot of these religious dissidents from New England. And these people used to be his strongest supporters. Because among the Dutch, Stuyvesant was not terribly popular, especially in the beginning, because he brought law and order. A lot of people who took advantage of the lack of law and order were uh, being snuffed out, business-wise anyway. But as for the English in those early days, they would prefer one strong man who likes them, Peter Stuyvesant, over being a minority in some sort of democratic system where they would be... Subject to the whims of the Dutch majority. But now things are changing. Stuyvesant and the English, there's some friction there now. Peter Stuyvesant, being a smart man, knew if the English did roll in, if there was another Anglo-Dutch war, these English colonists would turn on a dime. They say they're loyal to me. They say they're loyal to the Netherlands. But if there's an army coming at them, and they happen to be the same ethnicity, speaking the same language, as themselves, they're going to turn. He just knew it. And then outside of the colony, Stuyvesant, in his own letters in 1659, estimated that the people of New England outnumbered the people in New Netherland tenfold. And so around the year 1660, Stuyvesant and the Dutch West India Company encouraged a massive influx of immigration to the colony. And over the four- or five-year period from 1660, 1659 to 1664, we see the population roughly double, if I have my figures correctly. So we're going from around 5,000 to as much as 10,000 people by the midpoint of that decade. And a lot of scholars point out this is where a lot of diversity came from in the colony. It's, It's known for being a diverse colony compared to the English colonies, and that was not intentional. It was just because they needed bodies there and they didn't care too much about who they were. So the diverse legacy of New Netherland was not necessarily about the tolerance of the age. It was about getting bodies in the colony that would counter the English influence outside of the colony. Remember at this time, the Netherlands is going through a golden age. And it's very hard to coax people away from an area that is going through a golden age. And beyond the English threat, there are also the internal things going on that Stuyvesant would have to keep up on on a daily basis, including the ownership of what they call the South River, now the Delaware River, this entire area down there, which is now the state of Delaware and the southern portions of uh, New Jersey. Now, remember, some of that colony, some of the part of New Netherland down there was sold to the city of Amsterdam. Amsterdam, of course, being a city in the Netherlands. And now we get to this weird situation where Peter Stuyvesant has to constantly, throughout the late 1650s and into the 1660s, constantly reassert his authority over that area. Because yes, this is owned by the city of Amsterdam, but I, Peter Stuyvesant, am still the director general of this colony right now, or the governor general. There's a number of different titles. So he's constantly going down there and reasserting himself as the leader of of this entire colony. This is important because if New Netherland fragments in terms of loyalty, and we see portions of it loyal to certain cities back in the Netherlands, and they don't work as a cohesive whole, it's going to fall apart really quickly. Stuyvesant is smart, and he knows this. And back to our first topic, while he's down on the Delaware, he tells the authorities down there, all right, let's get a loyalty pledge from the English who are down here right now, and let's not let any more of these people in. We're cutting them off. This is a long way from what used to be Stuyvesant's favorite group in the colony. The English, his staunchest supporters before the First Anglo-Dutch War, now he doesn't want them in the colony at all. He wants to stop the influx of them. Peter Stuyvesant, to his credit, more than any other director general, was the, the most aware of land claims in the colony. You had the Treaty of Hartford that established a border between New Netherland and New England, the various New England colonies. You had his take back of the territory of New Sweden, which was once part of New Netherland, that became part of New Sweden, and he took it back. And there's a big back and forth with that. You can hear about it in a previous episode. It's pretty interesting. Also, he defended the colony during the First Anglo-Dutch War, when everything almost fell apart. And then at the very last minute, there was a peace declared. And because of his negotiations, he kept the colony afloat during those brief Scary moments. And New Netherland is no stranger to pretenders of the throne. People coming in and saying, you know what? I'm actually in charge of this area. Please move over. If you remember at the very beginning of our New Netherland series, New France was already starting to grow. And the French had a huge claim to large chunks of North America. They had colonies in Florida in the 16th century, all the way up into modern-day Canada. And so the Hudson River Valley was inside of what they considered their zone for a while. So when the Dutch first started showing up, they would already find French people there erecting flags and proclaiming France in the name of the king. And the Dutch would throw away the flags and kick the French out. And they solidified their claim over the Hudson River Valley, the South River, which is the Delaware River today, and the Fresh River, which was the Connecticut River. Of course, they lost that to the English later on. After that, we see English people rolling into the center of New Netherland with laughable claims, and you have to wonder what they were thinking. Literally, there's several times in New Netherland's history where a single man will walk square into New Amsterdam or another busy port city of New Netherland and say, hey, guess what? I'm actually in charge of this. Everybody needs to start listening to me. And somehow this man expected everyone to just follow him. However, he usually was arrested, beaten, and shipped off back to the Netherlands or wherever they wanted to send him. One example is in 1647, a Scotsman named Andrew Forrester he claimed all of Long Island with some forged paperwork. He just showed up, declared himself governor, said Long Island is mine. And of course everyone on Long Island said, no it isn't. And nobody listened to him and they, they of course imprisoned him and got rid of him. But you have to ask yourself, like, why would you even try to do that? When has that ever worked? And I'm not sure, maybe you at home would know, when have has anyone ever rolled into town and just taken over with some forged paperwork? Around the year 1649, the Lady Sterling had a claim to some territory in New Netherland, which, of course, the Dutch never uh, acknowledged. And she sent a representative, around 1649, to assert that claim. And, of course, they arrested him and sent him to the Netherlands for imprisonment or trial or something. And in this case, maybe he wasn't so crazy just showing up and declaring himself ruler... Maybe this was a purposeful effort by the Lord Sterling, well, his, his widow, to reassert the claim. In other words, she knew everyone wasn't just going to fall in line and abandon their allegiance to the Netherlands, but she was just going to keep on record that she had a claim to the area. Maybe that was the purpose. Either way, it seems a little crazy. After this, in the days where we had New Netherland and New Sweden, this man shows up, Sir Edmund Plowden who has a dubious background and may have forged almost his entire existence. There's been some research done on this. He even uh, wrote a book called The Description of the Province of New Albion. Now, Albion was the land he claimed to be in control of, which ran all the way from Virginia to the Hudson River. So this is another case where he rolls into town and says, Hey, I'm in charge here. Everybody fall in line. And everybody said, No, you're not. We don't even know who you are. Where Who even put you in charge? It's nobody in the Netherlands. We don't acknowledge that, so get out of here. That brings us up to the late 1650s, merging into the 1660s. Right around 1659, Cecil Calvert, the second lord of Baltimore, demands the city of New Amstel. He says it's part of Maryland's charter. And the Dutch produce deeds and say, no, we bought this land rightfully from Native Americans. Of course, the English do not acknowledge Native American deeds. And now we're right on that magical 1660 date, where all of a sudden these funny stories of yahoos going into town and declaring themselves rulers turn into actual threats. So here we go. In the year 1659, Peter Stuyvesant is asked by the English colony of Massachusetts if they can expand a little and begin a settlement along the Hudson River. This one acknowledges that the Dutch were the legal possessors of that area, according to the Treaty of Hartford in 1650. And also highlights the desire of these New Englanders to get to the Hudson River Valley. New England has thin, stony soil in general. Whereas the Hudson River Valley, having been cleared by the Mohawk of the Mohegan and several other smaller tribes, but then also being inhabited by the Dutch, who by and large aren't doing a lot of farming. There's the beginning of some farming communities. It was untouched. It was beautiful. The soil was so much deeper and richer Than what they found in much of New England not all of it, but much of it. And so they wanted it. The next year the Lord Baltimore is back and instead of going right to New Amstel he goes to the States General in the Netherlands and he says that my claim, my English claim, goes all the way up to 40 degrees north. Which the States General denied as this would run uh, Baltimore's claim well into the southern portion of New Netherland. But it shows that he's being persistent. 1660 Charles II becomes king of England after his family had been exiled. And so the monarchy has been restored. And one of the first things that he does is that he creates the Navigation Act, or the Navigation Acts, which you might have learned about in school, because it was the first attempt to regulate trade in the English colonies. Now, this mostly went forgotten, mostly was ignored, but it did say that, for example, a colony like Massachusetts would not be allowed to trade with New Netherland anymore on any sort of legal level anyway, because it was outside of the English Empire. How this might have harmed New Netherland is now the English, even more than ever, wanted to control the colony of New Netherland. Because, hey, we can't legally trade with you, but if we take you over, and you're part of England, we're open for business again. And so add that little bit of pressure to it. Now let's move right into 1662. Connecticut is granted by the crown all the land... Uh, Between its latitudes, all the way west to the Pacific Ocean, which means the colony of Connecticut would have claimed pretty much everything north of Long Island to a little bit south of what is now the capital district of New York State. Now, that would mean that Connecticut claimed a large chunk of New Netherlands' population as it was concentrated along this portion of the Hudson River. Now, in 1662, Connecticut really didn't press that claim, but... This is showing that the English have just ignored the Treaty of Hartford. The thing, the bulwark that would have kept New Netherland alive on its eastern border has now been broken down. The Crown has abandoned the Treaty of Hartford with this uh, patent of land. And this breakdown in diplomatic relations correlates to the national entities. We have England and the Netherlands who were both well-preparing for the second... Anglo-Dutch War hadn't been declared yet, but they knew it was coming. In fact, in 1663, Stuyvesant was informed by the States General that negotiations had broken down, and that the English and the Dutch were on the verge of war, and that Stuyvesant should prepare his colony to defend itself. But at that point in time, did not offer much in the way of military support or financial support. Stuyvesant had to figure this out on his own. Perhaps the need for funds to defend the colony is why in 1663, the Dutch West India Company sold all of the Delaware properties to the city of Amsterdam. All of what was formerly New Sweden is now owned by the city of Amsterdam. And I've never gotten a clarification on what exactly that meant in terms of whether or not Stuyvesant still had some control over the area or whether this would be a separate New Netherland. But either way, the cracks were starting to form from within in the very same year was the Second Espis War, which we covered in a previous episode, where the Esopus Indians are going to be wiped from the face of the earth. By the end of this year, it is reported, only 28 Esopus Indians survived. With all this going on in the colony, this was a good time for Connecticut to press its claim. Captain John Talcott, from Connecticut, went to Westchester, in what is now New York, and he said, This town is now part of Connecticut let's turn this over to English control. But this time, unlike all those previous times, it wasn't treated like a joke. And there was a question on whether or not Westchester was now in the hands of the English. Roughly around the same time, 1663, Colonel John Scott, English Colonel John Scott, started a revolt on Dutch Long Island, which of course was inhabited by a large amount of English colonists who had pledged their loyalty to the Dutch. However... The revolution has begun, and Long Island is now revolting and joining the English side. Stuyvesant, around this time, visits Boston to negotiate something with these New England colonies, because they're pressing land claims, and they're doing things they've never done before. They're breaking previously agreed-upon treaties. Relations are breaking down completely. He goes to Boston to try to mend things, while he's gone, of course. Another guy named John Christie, he goes to Long Island. He stirs up other English towns. But now those English colonists who are loyal to the Dutch are actually throwing out the Dutch authorities or arresting them. One of the local sheriffs, who the Dutch call Shouts, makes his way to New Amsterdam to ask for help. Long Island is in rebellion. Long Island probably had the largest concentration of English settlers in the New Netherland colony. But the New England colonies of Connecticut and New Haven... Yes, New Haven was its own colony. We will be talking about that in an upcoming season. They were pressing land claims along the Hudson. They were trying to convince towns to turn over their loyalty to New England. And they argued that Virginia and New England touched. In other words, New Netherland was illegal, unrecognized, unsanctioned. And the Atlantic Seaboard was one continuous English possession from Spanish Florida up to New France. These same people would also then buy land from the natives that would be found within what the Dutch considered the territory of New Netherland. Now remember, the Lenape people especially aren't getting along with the Dutch very well as of the last five, six years. And so they very happily will sell portions of their land that they may have already sold to the Dutch in the past to the English. So now we have competing land claims. We saw this with the story of New Sweden. Peter Stuyvesant knows this well. He knows this game. He's played this game. So here we are, 1663, and the people are being eaten away. The towns are being eaten away. The land is being eaten away by the English. New Netherland is on the verge of collapsing. In fact, the Hartford commissioners, the leaders from the New England colonies who agreed to the Treaty of Hartford in 1650, and their official documents and correspondence with Stuyvesant, they referred to him only as the Dutch governor of a plantation on the island of Manhattan. All right, so the Dutch would say that New Netherland was... Basically all of Delaware today, parts of Maryland, parts of Pennsylvania, all of New Jersey, and a huge chunk of eastern New York today. Massive amount of territory. That was what the new what that's what the Dutch considered to be New Netherland. Now the English at this point having broken their treaties, having bought up the land, having tried to convince townspeople to turn over to them, they're saying New Netherland is nothing but a farm, a large farm, a plantation, a plantation on the island of Manhattan. So that's a uh, a shrinkage of land by, I don't know, 99.5% at least. And this reduces Stuyvesant down to the position of manager of a farm. So he went from this great colonial leader who took over New Sweden, who has been vying for power between New France, New Netherland, New, Netherland, New England, who's... Taken out the Esopus tribe completely. Who's maintained uh, relations with the Haudenosaunee uh, Iroquois Confederation. The most powerful American Indian confederation that there is at this time. No, he's not that anymore. He's he's a farmer. But Stuyvesant is a fighter. And he actually is a farmer. But that's beside the point. He's a fighter. He's running these English out as fast as he can with just the few guys he has. You're trying to buy land from the natives here? No, get out of here. He runs them out of town. Every town they try to convert over, he goes in and he kicks them right out as soon as he can. But there's just so many English people. So Stuyvesant could be a bear, but the English are a pack of wolves, and it's a large pack. So let's turn now back to Long Island, and I'll get into a specific wolf. It's an Englishman by the name of John Scott. I believe he had some history in the New England colonies, but he's kind of a sordid character, doesn't really get along with anyone. And so, he ends up getting a commission back in merry old England himself, to take over Long Island. Now, how he was supposed to do it was to try as best as possible to peacefully convert town by town, everybody over to English rule. This was going to be easier for John Scott than the Puritan leaders of New England, because John Scott wasn't a Puritan. And the English who escaped from these New England colonies to Long Island, they themselves would have been considered something other than a Puritan which we've talked about in previous episodes. But religiously, they weren't this strict, and I want to say puritanical, but I'd I'd rather use a a synonym. They weren't as religious as the people of New England, and they enjoyed a more secular existence. John Scott was just like that. And so they were more receptive to his uh, rhetoric when he called for moving their alliance back to the King of England. And John Scott does a fantastic job. And Long Island, almost all of it, turns right over to him. In fact, he's able to march a makeshift army he has created from the people of Long Island into Brooklyn itself. In an attempt to turn Brooklyn over to the English. This is how close it's getting to, essentially, uh, New Amsterdam, which would have been Manhattan. So if Peter Stuyvesant is the bear... John Scott, the wolf, has made it square into the bear cave. He's just got to turn the one more corner, and he's at the center of the entire colony. But the people of Brooklyn, they don't want to turn power over to John Scott. John Scott has overextended his reach. And at this point, he's at a stalemate. He's got too many people in Brooklyn to be repelled or pushed out or convinced to leave. And yet he doesn't have enough people to take over by force. And so Peter Stuyvesant sends him a letter, saying, You come and meet me in New Amsterdam. We'll talk. John Scott, he answers back, Let Stuyvesant come here with a hundred men. I will wait for him and run my sword through his body. After this point in time, John Scott insists that the people of Brooklyn bow to him to acknowledge their loyalty to him and through him to England. Of course, many of the people decide, okay, I am I guess I'm going to just bow to this guy right now, and, you know, Peter Stuyvesant and him will figure this out later. But a small boy, one small boy, chooses not to bow. And John Scott, showing you what kind of man John Scott is, he goes up to the small boy, and he slaps him right across the face. The people of Brooklyn were incensed. I think that's a word. Incensed. Finally, a man threatened him with an axe, saying, you... Don't hit little kids. What was wrong with you? And, of course, Scott's soldiers went chasing after him and he ran off into the woods. But John Scott, he had a small force of about 170 men. And so he had to kind of go to these towns as one large group. So he leaves Brooklyn and he tries to go to these other Dutch-dominated towns in the colony. And none of them are turning over to him. But meanwhile, on the island of Long Island, he has declared himself the president of... ...of Long Island. And trust me, when we get to our season on New England... and the odd, strange New England colonies you've never heard of... ...we're going to talk about the president of Long Island. At this point, the ordinary folk in the colony... ...and the leaders under Stuyvesant... ...they know we're entering extreme times here. Things are getting dangerous. In February of 1664... ...at the meeting of the Burgomeisters of New Amsterdam... ...they petitioned Peter Stuyvesant to reinforce the city... Because they're scared of the English. Moving into March of 1664, unbeknownst to Stuyvesant, the Duke of York, the King of England's brother, is granted all of New Netherland. The English crown has said, these possessions, controlled by the Netherlands, are no longer recognized by us, and in fact, because of our previous expeditions in the area going back hundreds of years, it now belongs to you, my brother, the Duke of York. And if you pay attention to that man's title, you might know where this story is going. We have the Duke of York. He's also has a title in Scotland. Another name for Scotland is Alba. Sometimes Albany. Right? He's friends with the Dukes of Jersey. So, this is called foreshadowing, people. And in fact, when I just tell you it's foreshadowing, I don't think it is anymore. But we're going to move on from that. In that very same month, we start to see the cracks in Stuyvesant. Peter Stuyvesant, this pirate-looking strong man who's been in the New World for like 40 years, constantly fighting forces greater than himself and winning, in many cases. In March of 1664, he agrees to let John Scott keep control of Long Island until the upcoming Anglo-Dutch war is over, at least, or until a new negotiation is opened up with the New England colonies. So here we see Stuyvesant actually giving concessions to a man with a 170-man volunteer army who slaps little boys. Stuff is changing rapidly here. Stuyvesant, in the same month, also looked to reopen trade between the English and Dutch settlements. Again, with the Navigation Acts and the changes in England, and how much they've been uh, hounding New Netherland and trying to cut it off and literally cut pieces away from it. Uh, trade has ceased between the two, and it was illegal from the English point of view. He wanted to reopen the, uh, the highways, essentially. Troubling signs in April of 1664, Stuyvesant calls for delegates from 12 different towns. The most populated towns, lower part of the colony, middle to, mid to lower part of the colony, And he says, listen, we need to raise men, we need to raise supplies, the English are going to come, they're coming in, we need to be ready. The delegates refused to supply men and supplies for Stuyvesant's effort. At this point, this action, when 12 towns all say, no, Stuyvesant, we're not participating in this, we're not giving you anything, we're not supporting you. This shows a lack of hope for New Netherland. At this point, it New Netherland is now spiritually dead. All government and all nations are just ideas. If everyone inside of a nation at the same moment agree that, let's say, Turkey. Let's say the nation of Turkey. Everyone in Turkey instantly decided, simultaneously, Turkey doesn't exist. In that moment, Turkey doesn't exist anymore. It's as simple as that. And we're getting to that moment with New Netherland, where large amounts of people are simply not recognizing the authority of Stuyvesant, uh, his underlings, or even his overlings. They're not even acknowledging they're in New Netherland anymore. Long Island, especially. That same month, he gets a puzzling correspondence from the Netherlands. Stuyvesant receives a letter saying, The Netherlands have opened up negotiations with the English, and they have agreed to enter into an alliance. This is April of 1664. So the States General in the Netherlands are saying, we are now about to join an alliance with the English. Therefore, give the English whatever they've managed to take over in the last year, 18 months or so. Whatever they now control, let them keep controlling for the moment and just reinforce and protect what you have left. But Stuyvesant isn't the only one under the gun here. John Scott on Long Island who declared himself the president of Long Island. That wasn't in any sort of order given to him. He was supposed to secure Long Island for the pre-existing New England colonies. So Connecticut, finally in 1664, they send a small force to arrest John Scott. He has overreached his command. And when this contingent of men make it to Long Island and they find John Scott... They're shocked to see the townspeople rally around him. They have a standoff where all of a sudden you have this group of English settlers who are newly uh, realigned with England because of John Scott, and John Scott himself is going to be arrested by colonial English forces. What is going to happen now? Everyone is essentially on the same side here, except over the issue of this one guy. Nobody wants to fight. And let's say Long Island decides to openly rebel now against New England. Well, they can't they can't just go crawling back to New Netherland. It's not going to be that easy. So reading the situation, one of the Connecticut soldiers named Nathaniel Seeley, he simply goes up to John Scott and he manhandles him. He just picks him up, starts taking him. And of course that caused a little bit of a, a, a rebel rousing moment. Nathaniel Seeley probably turned around and said, what are you going to do about it? And the people of Long Island let John Scott go. It was just that easy. All it took was some big dude to just pick him up and walk out of there with him. Trouble's over. But as good as this sounds for New Netherland, Governor Winthrop himself, Governor of Massachusetts, who had long been Stuyvesant's biggest and most powerful ally in New England, Part of the the Hartford Treaty in 1650 created that nice border between the colonies, maintained peace between these reformed religion colonies. All of a sudden now, Governor Winthrop is showing up on Long Island and he's taking the place of what Scott was doing, turning over these cities, establishing that they're loyal to the King of England now, the English crown. And so Stuyvesant must have felt completely betrayed. He must have seen the writing on the wall, on the wall at this point. Because now Governor Winthrop himself, his best bud in New England, has betrayed him. During this period of time, the States General, the government of the Netherlands, sends a whopping 60 soldiers to help reinforce Stuyvesant. 60! 60 guys! To help Maintain control of this colony that took over portions of six different U.S. states today. Sixty guys. But now it's time for the final betrayal. On a national level, world level, because we're talking about world empires here. Stuyvesant receives news from the states general saying, Don't worry about anything anymore. The alliance has solidified. England and the Netherlands were at peace with one another. Crisis over. Just about at that same time, he receives news from his eyes and ears in Boston that an English fleet has arrived. And its destination is going to be New Amsterdam, the capital of the New Netherland colony. The English have played the States General completely. They intend fully to take over the entire colony. These two nations and their rhetoric back and forth throughout you know, the 20 years before this, 20 years after this, maybe even a longer period of time, they're constantly talking about their bond of being part of this reformed religion. Not just, not just being Protestant and opposing the overarching power of the Catholic Church and these strong Catholic monarchies, but that they were part of the same small vein of reformed religions, Calvinist religions, that they were brothers in faith and they would create this wonderful reformed league to defend truth and justice from old and antiquated ways that Europe had seen and known in the past. But all this rhetoric added up to nothing. Because the English were now going to forcibly take a Dutch colonial possession. And the thing is, the Netherlands had no idea this was going to happen. Stuyvesant knows what's going to happen. He can see the writing on the wall. The ordinary people in the colony can see the writing on the wall. But the Netherlands is clueless. They were tricked. They were fooled. But they're not the ones who are going to have to pay the price. It's at this point that Stuyvesant tries to rally all the forces he can together. All the resources, anything he has left, he has to use now. There's nothing in the reserve. He has to use it now. This is it. The colony is alive or it's dead. This is going to be the moment. But Stuyvesant has been here before. Remember, years ago, all this happened before. There was a fleet moving in. ...during the first Anglo-Dutch War. And it very nearly took over New Amsterdam. But news came in last minute of a peace agreement between the two nations. Then everyone just went home, and we had peace again. So Stuyvesant is still holding out hope that there'll be another set of letters... ...telling everybody in New England, hey, time to back off. Telling everyone in New Netherland, hey, don't have to worry about anything. We signed a peace agreement. But as the fleet moves closer and closer to New Amsterdam... ...it never comes... There's no peace agreement. There's no bailing out this time. Stuyvesant is going to have to deal with the English fleet and the militias on Long Island coming towards him and the militias in New England coming towards him. He's going to have to deal with all of this head on. Stuyvesant reaches out to his own scarce resources left in New Netherland who haven't buckled under the pressure of the English. He reaches out to the Long Island Dutch militia. They don't assemble. None of the town's. No one's loyal to him anymore. He has lost Long Island. When the fleet shows up, commanded by Colonel Nichols, he has less than 150 men at New Amsterdam. Less than 150 men against New England and the fleet from Old England. This is going to be a 300 last stand at Thermopylae situation. This is going to be the Alamo. Nichols sends a representative to New Amsterdam to order the surrendering of the colony as a whole through the surrendering of Fort Amsterdam and New Amsterdam itself. There are a lot of different provisions and terms, but basically, if Stuyvesant agrees to surrender peacefully, the people will not lose their possessions, the people will not be molested, it will be a peaceful transition of power. Similar to the term Stuyvesant gave to the governor of New Sweden. But at the same time, the colonel's sending out scouts all around Manhattan Island to all the farms and all the farmers. And he's threatening them, saying, we're laying siege to New Amsterdam right now. We're having a standoff. If you support the Amsterdam settlement with food or any supplies, we're gonna burn your house to the ground. We're gonna burn your farms to the ground. We're gonna set your crops on fire. The barns are going up. Everything's gone. Don't even think about it. Stuyvesant's reply to Nichols, Outlines the legal background for the ownership of the colony by the Netherlands. He doesn't give up an inch. He doesn't show an ounce of weakness. And he argues that this is legally property of the Netherlands. We control this land. This is our possession by discovery, by settlement, by legal purchases. This is ours. If you do this, there's going to be international ramifications, he says. Because remember, at this point, the two nations aren't quite at war yet. So he's going to argue, if you take this colony, you might just push your mother country into a conflict, and you'll look like the dunce who started it. And despite all the bravado in that letter, he sends another one, by secret courier out, hopefully making its way back to the Netherlands. And it's said, simply, Long Island is gone and lost. The capital cannot hold out long. This is quite revealing, because despite how Stuyvesant is going to appear outwardly to his own people and to the English, inside, he knows where this is headed. Then Governor Winthrop himself sends a letter, personally telling Stuyvesant, It's over. I know we're friends, we have a deep history, but... This is just how it turns out. If you surrender the city, this can all be peaceful. Nobody needs to get hurt, including yourself. Come on, man, just give it up. And with these letters going back and forth and Stuyvesant refusing everything, the Burgomeisters of the city, they finally demanded to see this correspondence. What is the deal? Are they offering us a deal? Are they gonna slaughter us all? What's going on here? And when they see the correspondence and they see the good terms that Colonel Nichols is offering, they vote to surrender the colony. Well, more accurately, they vote to surrender New Amsterdam. But with New Amsterdam taken, the colony's going to go with it. And with that, Stuyvesant finally sur- No, he didn't. He didn't surrender. Against everyone else's wishes. He kept the standoff going. There are 1,500 lives in New Amsterdam at this time. All depended on Stuyvesant- Doing the right thing, in the right manner, or everyone is going to be dead. It is recorded that Stuyvesant, with this small force of men, greatly outnumbered, vastly outgunned. And despite this, Stuyvesant has the cannons ready to go. They are facing off. Colonel Nichols says to Stuyvesant, Hoist the white flag. It's time for you to surrender, man. You gotta give this up. This is gonna get crazy if you don't. Stuyvesant responds, and I quote, i had rather be carried a corpse to my grave than to surrender the city. And then... This episode of the Other States of America History Podcast comes to an end. Please tune in next time to see our thrilling conclusion...